On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. Well, howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here, continuing our study of Ecclesiastes. Our Meaningless Life series this week hits part 15. Uh, The text is Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11 through chapter 10, verse 7. And the sermon title, message title, talk title, whatever you prefer, is good news for losers. We'll start by talking about winning. We live in a world, a day, and age in which uh, winning is a massive motivation. When, uh, When there's an opportunity to win, it compels people to make tremendous sacrifices and to press forward and to give their all. That's why... When kids are little, uh, we tend to tell them, if you play by the rules, you work hard, you give it all you've got, you can win. You can be a winner. Uh, When kids are growing up, we read them stories about people who did the right thing, and as a result, they were winners. And bad people did the wrong thing, and they were losers. We are continually bombarded. Television, movies, social narratives, social media about stories of hardworking people, let's say, for example, athletes who overcame long odds to be a champion. Uh, When kids are little, we read them stories, oftentimes fairy tales, about the poor, humble peasant girl who acts with integrity and she becomes the princess or the outcast and downcast young man who conducts himself with honor and valor, and eventually he becomes the prince and he marries the princess and they live happily ever after. Then as we get a little bit older, we realize that life really doesn't work like this. Unlike the fantasy world, in the real world, smart people work for dumb people, honest people get ripped off by evil people, and being a humble, hardworking, kind person might just make you an easy mark to get used and abused. Admittedly, it's a bit dark, but it leads some people to despair and even depression. But as we examine this section of Ecclesiastes this week, it's also an opportunity to learn that everyday life provides opportunities for us to grow in wisdom. So here's the big idea I want you to get, friend. It's not about winning. It's about being wise. Not everybody can win, but by God's grace, we can be wise. So what Solomon is doing this week, he he shifts our focus from from winning to wisdom, from winning to wisdom. And that's the good news for losers. Even if you lose or when you lose, you can still be wise and you can still grow in wisdom through the defeat. Uh, His first point is this, you cannot control your future. Ecclesiastes 9, 11 and 12. He says, I have observed something else under the sun. When he talks about under the sun, he's talking about just seeing life from our perspective, not necessarily from God's perspective. And here's what he says. The fastest runner doesn't always win the race, and the strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. 
The wise sometimes go hungry, and the skillful are not necessarily wealthy. And those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. It is all decided by chance by being in the right place at the right time. He then concludes by saying people can never predict when hard times might come. Like fish in a net or birds in a trap, people are caught by sudden tragedy. Reach over here. I'm holding in my hand my phone. My guess is you, like me, have tomorrow laid out and possibly days and months and years after that on your phone, in your day planner. Maybe you're like me. You carry around a notebook of things to do and, and lists to check off. One way or another, even if it's just in your mind, we tend to have an idea of exactly what's going to happen tomorrow, and we try to anticipate and prepare for it. And what this does, it, it helps us feel that life is manageable, that life is under control, and that things work according to a predictable pattern. But if we're honest, we all know this is an illusion. We can influence our lives, but we do not control our lives. Some of you have been fighting this fact for a long time. You keep trying to get your life under control, and you can't. Well, when we're not in control, God's still in control, which means life is not out of control. It's under His control. You can influence your life. You can make decisions that influence and affect your future. But as he says, we ultimately do not control our lives. This is because there are circumstances beyond our control that we remain completely unaware of until they absolutely blindside us. These are the things that we don't see coming, we don't know about, and therefore we cannot prepare for. And Solomon, he rightly observes this fact about life. Uh, he says, sometimes the fast runner gets the bronze medal and the slow runner gets the gold medal. Sometimes the guy who goes to the gym every day and working on his Muay Thai and his boxing and his jiu-jitsu gets knocked out at the bar by a drunk, fat union guy who landed a sucker punch. Sometimes the gal who studied hard in school and was top of her class and got the right degree goes in for an interview and doesn't get the job because the boss hired his girlfriend instead. Everything in life isn't fair, and it doesn't always work according to plan, and sometimes things are not the way they're supposed to be. From our perspective under the sun, without God's view of things, here's what he's saying. It can easily appear that life is ruled by happenstance and chance and circumstance, but if we know the Bible, we know it's ultimately ruled by God's providence. Um, what he's saying is, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We may have everything lined up, ready, organized, prepared, and then out of nowhere, everything changes, and some of it's just inexplicable. Uh, family and I live in Phoenix, Arizona, and I have my Jeep, my Jeep Wrangler. Uh, love it, took the top off it, enjoying the winter down here, and uh, love, love, love the sun and the nice weather. Um, the weather app said it was going to be a nice, sunny day. So I got the top off my Jeep and I was rolling around and it was clear skies and then suddenly out of nowhere, boom, massive rain came out of nowhere, completely unexpected. It was like God took a lake and dumped it upside down in the air just to see what would happen. And life is like that. Storms of tragedy and misery, they roll in unannounced and we are unprepared. That's what he's saying. There was no way I could have seen it coming. There are far bigger 
significant, painful, tragic moments of your life, and I don't mean to compare in any way, but the analogy is just there are things you just don't see coming. You can't anticipate or prepare for. I mean, I, I know people that they came home and found that their spouse was gone, left them. No idea. I know people that tucked their kid in bed at night and went to pick them up in the morning and they died of sudden infant death syndrome. I mean, just there are things in life that you just don't know, can't anticipate, would never prepare for, and they come very suddenly and sometimes very tragically. When this happens, we're left with two options. And this is really the theme of the wisdom literature in general, which is a category of books of the Bible that includes Ecclesiastes, which talks a lot about this as well. A, wisdom, B, folly. Here's what you can't choose, whether or not you're a winner. Can't choose that because the circumstances are beyond your control. You can influence and do your best and try your hardest and see what happens. You cannot guarantee that you'll be a winner, but you can guarantee that you'll be wise. And when tragedy and misery comes upon us, or simply we lose, we fail. We can choose the path of wisdom. We can choose the path of falling. And in our world, we don't like to put people into clean categories. I don't know if you've seen this. Male, female, Christian, non-Christian, godly, ungodly, right, wrong, wise, foolish. But the, the God of the Bible doesn't seem to care a lot about his poll numbers. And he frequently divides humanity into two groups, the wise and the foolish. And in our day, the rallying cry for tolerance and diversity, it's not always bad, but sometimes that can include the celebration of folly, which only causes misery. But if everybody's wise, then nobody's foolish, and that's a foolish thing to say. Solomon's point is that while we cannot control our future, we can control our response. And by God's grace, we can choose wisdom over folly, even in the midst of tragedy. That's what he's driving at. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about the last time you... You failed, you lost, you were wounded, you were harmed, you were hurt. A tragedy came upon you. Maybe this is very recently. Maybe this is now a bit more in the rearview mirror. Or think of someone in your life that is undergoing a, a painful, difficult, hard, tragic, complicated circumstance right now. I literally just got off the phone with a case like that. And the call before that was another case like that. I was hoping to sit down and, and record this little message about four or five hours ago, but I've been on the phone with people in crisis and in trauma, enduring tragedy and pain and suffering, and it's taken half my day because they didn't see it coming. And so then they call me because I love them and I want to help them. And I didn't see it coming. And we all need to determine what are we going to do now and how will we respond? And it's either wisely or foolishly. And the same is true for you, and the same is true for those that you love and you care for and you pour into and you give counsel to. So he proceeds forward, and he says, you can choose obedience. Right? You, you, you can't choose to win. There are circumstances beyond your control. 
You can't choose to get the job, get the promotion, cure cancer, not get divorced, have your kids turn their heart toward the Lord, all your bills be paid off. You, you can't control those things. You can influence those things. You can do the very best you can, but there's no, there's no guarantee. Those are not things you can just choose. But you can choose obedience. It's one thing that is under your control. It is one thing that is under your jurisdiction. Here's how he says it in Ecclesiastes 9, 13 through 18. He says, here's another bit of wisdom that has impressed me as I've watched the way our world works. There was a small town with only a few people and a great king came with his army and besieged it. A poor wise man knew how to save the town and so it was rescued, but afterward no one thought to thank him. So even though wisdom is better than strength, those who are wise will be despised if they are poor. What they say will not be appreciated for long. Then gives a few proverbial statements. Better to hear the quiet words of a wise person than the shouts of a foolish king. Better to have wisdom than weapons of war, but one sinner can destroy much that is good. Uh, this section of the Bible was originally written in the language of Hebrew. Um, much, most of the Old Testament was. And this section of Ecclesiastes is some of the most complicated Hebrew in the entire Old Testament. I won't even pretend that I'm an expert or that I understand all of the complex debates. I've read the commentators and the scholars. And let me just say that it really comes down, basically, if I could summarize, to two teams. Two basic views, two basic interpretations. Um, and I think either one could possibly be accurate, and I think both provide basically a same, if not similar, insight. Well, what everybody agrees upon is that the story is probably a parable, maybe a real story. Solomon is a king, and uh, he would have an army, but, but, but maybe this is a parable about a small town filled with a handful of people, and these are poor peasants, and they're up against a powerful king and his massive army. Okay, that we all agree on. What this means is, barring a miracle, these poor, rural peasants are going to be absolutely destroyed, decimated, and devastated by this overpowering, overwhelming army. Okay, all the commentators basically agree on that. We're then introduced to a simple man who happens to be poor. Um, think of a regular working guy that nobody really pays attention to. Just a very normal, hardworking, poor, simple, perhaps uneducated person. Not someone that gets a lot of prominence. People aren't singing their praises. They're not seeking them for counsel. This is a very simple, humble, regular, working man. Now, some think that the city failed to heed his advice. They think that he gave them counsel and the, uh, the people in the city didn't listen and because of it, they were destroyed. Others think that they did heed his advice and they were saved, but a short time later, they forgot all about him and his wisdom and they went right back into their foolish and sinful patterns that had gotten them into trouble in the first place. Either way, I would submit to you that the point, the moral of the story is basically the same. Um, Fools never listen and fools never learn. And that even if wisdom is avail available to them, they do not avail themselves to it. In either regard, they never listen to him or they listen to him once and never listen to him again. Either way, the story is basically the same. 
Here's a man who gives wisdom and it's readily available and people are not listening to him. They're not seeking him because he doesn't seem powerful. He doesn't seem rich. He doesn't seem famous. He doesn't seem educated because like the Lord Jesus, sometimes wisdom comes humbly. And sometimes the people who are the most wise don't look like the people who would be the most wise. Because sometimes wise people don't draw a lot of attention to themselves and don't boast in themselves. And they're not arrogant and haughty and platform building. There's a humility about them. And that's what this man is like. Here's what I think Solomon wants us to consider. Wisdom is available to us, but oftentimes we neglect it. And oftentimes what we don't need is more information. We don't need more insight. We don't need more facts. We don't need more trivia. We don't need more research. We don't need more data. What we need is more obedience to what we already know. This is what James, Jesus' little brother, says when he says in the epistle bearing his name, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. That's the point of what is perhaps the parable. A wise man could have been very helpful, and he was right there and willing and able to help, but nobody was listening, nobody was paying attention. And so, let's just agree that the amount of minutia, trivia, facts, and information in our day is overwhelming and staggering. But what we're lacking is wisdom. If you want to find folly, you can find that on the internet. If you want to see facts and trivia and opinions and perspectives, well, you can get that on the internet as well. Where do you go for wisdom? We're not lacking facts. We're not lacking data. We're not lacking info. We're not lacking conjecture. We're not lacking perspective. We're not lacking criticism. We're not lacking scrutiny. We're not lacking opposition. We're not lacking trolling. What we're lacking is wisdom. And the bit of wisdom that we do have, we have to sift through all the noise and all the clutter and all the folly and all the nonsense and all the shenanigans to receive wisdom and, the, and then act upon it as quickly as we possibly can. So let me, let me ask you a question. If you're listening to this, right now is the biggest problem in your life that you don't know what to do or that you do know and you're just not doing it? Is your biggest problem that God hasn't given you any wisdom or that he's given you wisdom and you're not obeying it? That's the whole point of the story. Sometimes we don't need to know more. We need to do more with what we know. Sometimes we don't need God to teach us something new. We need to obey something old. And I don't know what that is for you. You know, it's, that's the Holy Spirit's job to bring that to mind to you. So think about that for a moment while I go turn off my wife's phone as it's sitting here in my office.
give you some examples. You know that you should read your Bible, but do you read it? You know that you should pray, but do you pray? You know you should be in community with God's people, but are you in community with God's people? You know you should eat good food, not bad food, and we still tend to eat Eatos, Cheetos, Fritos, Taquitos, Burritos. You get the drill. Oftentimes, pain, tragedy, misery, hardship comes, and we think, okay, I need God to speak to me, and God may be saying, I already did, and you need to act upon that and obey that. So the first thing he says is, you can't choose to win. Not everything's going to go the way you want. So things are going to be painful and miserable and awful. Welcome to the fallen world. And I'm sorry for that, but that's reality in the fallen world. If this world murdered Jesus, it's also going to beat us up. That's how it's going to go. We can't choose to win, but we can choose to obey. And secondly, he said, you can choose wisdom. You can choose wisdom. Um, he's going to do this in chapter 10, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4, and I'll walk through them. But they're each an illustration, example, or a sub-point under this big idea that no matter what's going on, you can't choose to win, but you can choose to be wise. You can choose to be wise. Uh, he says, chapter 10, verse 1, As dead flies cause even a bottle of perfume to stink, so a little foolishness spoils great wisdom and honor. Go back to, uh, I was trying to think of the stinkiest season of my life, literally speaking. And I had to go back to college. Grace and I got married in college. And uh, the season before Grace was the stinky season. In college, while I was still single, became a Christian, I lived in one of those big old rundown houses, those college houses where guys pile in like ants on an anthill for cheap rent, but fail to ever clean the house. We literally had guys that were renting out the food pantry. We had a dude who lived on a cot in the basement and just paid like a couple bucks a month. I mean, th this place was was not good. And, and because it was all guys trying to get the cheapest rent possible, we didn't really maintain this place. And... We never really cleaned the house that much. As the school year went on, we didn't need a cleaning crew. We needed a hazmat team. And if you open the door to the house, sometimes it would smell like a fridge that had Chinese food in it left over from the Nixon administration. Bad. The bathroom was such a scary place that at the time, Grace, my girlfriend, now my wife, she refused to even use it. She would drive home to her place miles away if she needed to use the bathroom. Conversely, I would go visit Grace over at her little two-bedroom house, one that she shared with a, another gal, and it smelled totally different. I don't know if you single guys can relate to this. You can walk into a house and just determine, oh, women live here or single men live here. There's a real different, real different scent. So Grace's place had uh, scented candles, something called potpourri, air fresheners, other things that just smelled very, very nice. And this is because as a general rule, Women smell better than men. And I know you're not supposed to make gender stereotypes, but uh, women smell better than men. Let's just all agree to that because it's an incontrovertible fact. And one guy I knew some years ago, I asked him, so tell me about your wife. Why do you marry her? He said, quote, because she smelled like vanilla, which I thought was an interesting answer. Guy could have ended up marrying the ice cream man. Anyways, women smell better than men. 
And the house that I lived in did not smell good, but the house that Grace lived in did smell good. What, what Solomon is saying here is that there are certain things that stink up our whole life. And it doesn't need to be a big thing. Have you ever had one thing in the garbage can or one thing in the fridge and it just was so overpowering that it just wrecked the whole environment? It ruined the entire presence of everything else? What he's talking about here is perfume, a lovely, nice bottle of perfume <clears throat> that creates a pleasing environment and a fly lands in it and starts to rot and then infects and affects the whole bottle of perfume. And rather than sending off a glorious scent, it's a grotesque scent. That's what it does. And it stinks up the whole house. And you'll hear people say this. I actually had someone say this to me this morning on a phone call. They said, quote, life stinks. Life stinks. Well, that's basically what Solomon is saying. That when there's folly in your life, even if it's a little bit of folly, it stinks up your whole life. Just like something funky in your fridge stinks up your whole house. And just like we throw the trash out of the fridge, we throw the trash out of the house, we need to take the trash out of our lives. That's what he's saying. And the analogy here is that the, the rotting, the dead, uh, the stench-filled, disgusting part of life is folly. It's foolishness. So you can choose wisdom, and wisdom starts by taking out the folly. What folly is in your life? What folly is stinking up your life? What folly needs to be taken out of your life? These are the kind of questions that would naturally ensue. And I ask them not to condemn you. I ask them of myself as well, but to just give you an invitation, an opportunity to say, just because you've been doing something for a long time doesn't mean you need to keep doing it if it's foolish. Just because you used to do things a particular way and that was not the right way to do things, you made bad decisions, you got emotional, you were impetuous, you didn't have a budget or a plan, or you weren't discerning in your relationships or whatever the case may be, well, you don't have to proceed in that direction. Just like you put something in your fridge, it doesn't need to be there for the next 20 years, you can throw it away. Just because something is stinking up the house doesn't mean that because you brought it into your life, you have to just endure it for the rest of your life. You have every right to just get rid of it. That's what he's saying. Chapter 10, verse 2, under this subheading of you can choose wisdom, he goes on to say, a wise person chooses the right road, a fool takes the wrong one. This is not a political verse, but some of the translations will say, a wise man inclines to the right and a fool to the left. So I guess if you're a Republican, there's a funny proof text you can play as a joke on your friends. Anyways, the truth is, if we're really honest, when we feel like we've played by the rules, we've done our best, we've sought to be responsible, and life responds with a cruel twist of fate, sometimes it's easy to fall into folly. You and I both know the drill. Why? Because we've, we've both done it. Get angry, get emotional, get hurt, get frustrated, get jaded, get overwhelmed. If you want to make matters worse, start doubting the goodness of God. Start yelling at this guy because this all went down on God's watch. Perhaps in these moments, at least occasionally, you've even felt justified to sin a bit. 
like God owes you. You did your part. He failed to do his part. And since you did your part and he failed to do his part, maybe you have earned the right to get a free pass on your favorite vice, which is eating, drinking, spending, gambling, gossiping, raging, porning, whining, fornicating, whatever. Sometimes when people are hurting and they feel it is unjustified, it is unfair, it is, it is just wrong, sometimes we feel like I have earned the right to do something foolish right now. Punch the wall, have four drinks, pick a fight, go online and rage for a while on social media, whatever. I have earned the right to act foolishly for a little while because of my pain. But what he's saying is, when we respond to tragedy with folly, the result is only more misery. Okay, this is like a dad sitting you down and saying, I know you're hurting and I know it's tough. But I'm telling you, if you start acting foolishly, you're only going to hurt yourself more. And so what he's saying is we must pursue wisdom and we must pursue life with wise people. We can pray for and serve people who are foolish, but if you're single, don't marry them. If you're going into business, don't go into business with them. And in any way you can, avoid tying up your life and fate with foolish people. That's what he's saying. And this is really important because this is, there's a difference between sin and folly. Um, sin includes folly, but folly doesn't always include sin. There are things that are not morally evil. They're just dumb. They're just dumb. So... If you are a person who is prone toward folly, people may have a hard time because, they're, well, you're not, it's not a sin. It's just a bad idea. It's not a sin. It's just a waste of time. It's not a sin. It's just a waste of energy and effort. Uh, this is like someone who, they just watch TV all the time. They're online all the time. They're obsessing over social media all the time. They're gossiping. That would be a sin. But otherwise, maybe they're just bored, they're distracted, they're, they're wasting a lot of time and energy. Things like that are not necessarily a sin. It's not like the police are going to show up because the law was broken or the church is going to discipline you because a clear command of Scripture was violated. But it's just dumb. It's like, why would you do that? Why would you spend your life like that? That's what he's talking about. But we're more prone to make those kinds of foolish decisions when we're hurting when we're tired, when we're exhausted, when we're in pain, when we're frustrated, when, when, when the bottom is dropped out of life and we find ourselves in a very precarious and difficult place. And so if you're one of those people or you find yourself at some point in one of those places or you're given the opportunity by the Lord to minister to someone who is in a place like that, the goal is to direct them constantly back toward wisdom not what can we do to fix this? What can we do to win? What can we do to regain this? What is the wise thing to do? That's the different question. What would the wise path through this be? What would the wise response to this be? And if you've got friends who come around in your worst moments and are like, 
You've earned it. Go out and do X, Y, Z. That's foolishness talking, and folly only contributes to misery. He then says something in chapter 10, verse 3, under this subtext of you can choose wisdom. He says you can identify fools by the way they walk down the street. That's what he says in 10.3. What he's saying is, and he's, he's again dealing with this big category of wisdom and folly and wise people and foolish people, and I'm not going to tell you that that I'm wise. I think the best thing we can all say is I, I seek to be wise by the grace of God or to say uh, I'm a fool seeking wisdom by the grace of God. Wisdom, like humility and perfection, is a constant, never-ending pursuit. So I just feel inclined to say I don't sit on a throne and pretend that I am the source of all wisdom. But the first thing that wisdom does is it recognizes I'm not wise and I've got a lot of things to learn. Well, Jesus tells us that man looks at the outward, but that God looks at the heart. And his point is that you can't always judge a person by what you see because God sees aspects of them rather that we don't see. There's a difference between judging people, though, and being discerning. Um, Jesus says, you know, don't judge. The Bible says don't judge. The, the truth is... We don't know someone's heart. We don't know their backstory. We don't know all the facts. We need to be careful not to judge, but we can be discerning. We can be discerning. We don't have to pretend that everybody and everything is always okay. We can be discerning. So when he says you can identify fools by the way they walk down the street in Ecclesiastes 10.3, what he's saying is sometimes you can spot a fool coming. Sometimes a fool is like a ninja. He snakes up on you, didn't see it. You marry a guy, you think he's a great guy, then you find out he's just a totally different guy than the guy he was pretending to be. He was like an actor on a stage reading a script. Same thing can happen in a dating relationship or a business relationship or a friendship. But sometimes you can just see a fool coming. So the easiest way to walk in wisdom is to at least start by being discerning and seeing the fools who are coming. Give you an example. I've got two teenage daughters, 12 and 18. Let's say a boy shows up because he wants to take out my 18-year-old daughter. And his pants are down where his uh, shoes are supposed to be, which means uh, the whole world is gazing at his underbritches. And he shows up at my door um, with a 40 ounce of beer in one hand and a joint in the other. And he asked if he could borrow my card to take my daughter out because his got impounded after his 13th DUI. I don't need to pray about the Lord's will. I don't need to ask, Heavenly Father, should I give this guy the keys and my daughter? Solomon's point is, are there some foolish people in your life And everybody else sees it and knows it, and you're ignoring it or tolerating it. And this is sometimes what happens when you get to know somebody who's foolish. You, 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 you sort of derive a high folly tolerance. It's like some people have a high pain tolerance. Some people have a high folly tolerance. They can deal with a lot of crazy, a lot of drama, and for them it becomes normative. But it's very destructive and very unhealthy. Do you, do you have discernment when you see a fool coming just to say, oh, no, I, 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 no, I'm not getting tangled up with this? Or if everyone else looks and says, it's obvious, this person is very, very foolish. 
And here's what foolish people do. Foolish people push their responsibilities off on responsible people because foolish people are irresponsible people. And what irresponsible people do, they push their responsibilities onto you. So let's say there's a responsible gal dating a foolish guy. She's having to babysit him and look after him. Let's say there is a foolish young woman living with her parents. She's pushing off all of her responsibilities to her parents and they are just fraught with worry about her because she keeps making bad decisions and self-destructing and they're always trying to rescue her. Let's say it's somebody you work with. They don't do their job. They're irresponsible. They don't follow through. And as a result, you know, they're going to get themselves in trouble or fired. And so responsible people in the workplace start to pick up all of their duties and responsibilities. This is where we get codependency and enabling and all those counseling categories come into play. That's what a foolish person does. Who's foolish in your life? Who are you covering for? Who are you picking up after? Who's walking into your life right now or in the near future that they're just foolish and you got to see them coming. Everybody else sees them for who they are. And then also, are we the fool? And when we are the ones who are coming into business, into church, into ministry, into life, into social circles and networks, are we the fool? <clears throat> and if so, what does it look like to change by God's grace to pursue wisdom so that when people see us or think of us, they think, well, there is someone pursuing wisdom by the grace of God, even if they were formerly foolish. And then he transitions to folly in the workplace. And this is all under the rubric of you can choose wisdom. Um, and he talks about the workplace in chapter 10, verse 4. If your boss is angry at you, don't quit. A quiet spirit can overcome even great mistakes. Let's just be honest. No matter how good of an employee you are, at some point, your boss is going to want to trade you in for a ham sandwich because at least the ham sandwich is useful. Every employee at some point drives their employer crazy. Boss, management, overseer, whatever the case is. And there's a difference between a sin and a mistake. A sin is a moral evil, a clear violation of Scripture. A mistake is part of our humanity. We didn't mean a moral evil and we didn't violate a line of the Bible. We just messed up. Sins are morally evil. Mistakes are sometimes just aspects of our imperfect humanity. On the job, we make mistakes. And the problem with mistakes, however, is that they can cause as much pain and frustration as sins. So at some point, your boss will become frustrated, angry, upset, unhappy because of your mistakes. And as soon as that happens, the first instinct is usually, I'm going to quit my job. And while sometimes it is a good idea to quit your job, sometimes there's not a good path forward. This is not working. God's provided another opportunity. I'm not a good fit for the job. Um, it's not, it's just not viable to proceed forward. What he's saying is that wisdom recommends that we do not rush to such a drastic decision. And this is true for all of life. When there's a big decision to be made, 
give it some time. This is why even in a lot of states, for example, with uh, divorce, they'll have a cooling off period. You could file for divorce, but it's not legalized and formalized for a month or two just to let you cool down and see if you still want the same outcome. That's why in certain states, too, with gun laws, at least here in the United States, there's a cooling off period. If you're going to go in and register, you need to wait a little while before you get your gun, because if you're really ticked off at somebody, getting it in 15 seconds like a burrito at a drive-thru might not be the best idea. When someone becomes upset with us, unhappy with us, especially our boss, we become nervous. When we get nervous, we get chatty. We start trying to explain or excuse or deny or blame or or get out of it or help them see it. And we get chatty because we're nervous. And, and the truth is, the more we talk, the worse it gets. That's what he says. A quiet spirit can overcome even great mistakes. Proverbs says that... Uh, Sometimes words are like logs and conflict is like a fire. And the more words we have, the bigger the fire gets. So starve the fire. Just be quiet. Just be quiet. Sometimes it's good to say, I own it. I made a mistake. I'm very sorry. I want to learn from this. I want to be wise. I want to do better in my future than I did in my past. I'll just shut up and walk away now and uh, let everybody and everything cool down and we'll pick it up down the road and see if we can't straighten this out. What in your life right now do you need to stop talking about? More words isn't going to bring more healing. More words isn't going to bring more clarity. More words isn't going to bring more resolution. More words is just going to bring more problems. Sometimes the answer is not talk about it. Sometimes the answer is talk about it. Sometimes the answer is stop talking about it. That's what he's saying. What in your life do you just need to stop talking about? It's like, that season is over. I've said everything I could say. I've said everything that needs to be said. It's time to move on. And again, in the wisdom literature, what these are are the principles that then you need to grab and the Holy Spirit needs to help you apply to specific circumstances. Because... Wisdom is not, like I've said, it's not a paint-by-numbers kit. It's not a math equation. It's not like going to Ikea, getting furniture, and following the directions. Life isn't like that. Certain things, relationships, networks of people, life decisions, they require wisdom. And the Holy Spirit has to give you biblical principles to apply to your circumstances. And this is where the personal relationship with the Holy Spirit is absolutely, incontrovertibly necessary because people sometimes will even say, well, you just need to study God's word. True. And the Holy Spirit needs to help you apply the principles of scripture that are appropriate in the right way, with the right heart, at the right time, for the right reason. But he does give us this great hope that you can choose wisdom. 
You may have chosen chosen rather folly in the past. There may be things you say, gosh, I got to stop doing that. I got this pattern in my life. The the way I think, the decisions I make when I'm tired, I I get I get foolish when I'm angry. I get foolish when I'm hurt. I get foolish when when whatever the circumstances are that contribute to your folly, it's pulling back and saying, what does wisdom dictate that I do right here, right now in the midst of this? And I'm telling you as a guy who's been on the phone all morning with conflicts and blow-ups and divorces and legalities, none of which regards me, but just people that I pastor and I love and I serve and I'm trying to help, people that are burying loved ones and in the middle of business dealings and legal conflicts and divorces and custody disputes. And that's been my whole morning with a a, a fairly long list of people in trauma and crisis in multiple states across the United States of America. And invariably, when people hit a certain point, they're like, what do I do? And you're like, boy, you got to ask the Holy Spirit that question. You need to open God's word. You need wisdom. You need to ask right now in this moment, under these circumstances, what does wisdom say? What does wisdom do? What does wisdom dictate? And this is where James 1 is a section of the Bible that I've prayed more than any other section of the Bible. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Let him ask God, who gives an abundance without finding fault. And I pray that prayer all the time. Holy Spirit, bring me wisdom. I don't know what to do here. I'm not sure what to say. I'm not sure how to counsel this person or even counsel myself. I need wisdom. And he closes by saying, not only can you be wise, and by God's grace, you can be wise and grow in wisdom. You can honor wise people. And let's just be honest. We live in a world that, that it honors foolish people. And it, and it sometimes dishonors wise people. Chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. There is another evil I have seen under the sun. Kings and rulers make a grave mistake when they give great authority to foolish people and low positions to people of proven worth. I have seen servants riding horseback like princes and princes walking like servants. See, one day in God's eternal kingdom, the wise will be honored and the foolish will not be honored. Until then, this upside-down world has it all wrong. In God's eyes, someone who is wise is like a prince or a princess. Or in the world's eyes, they are disregarded and discarded. Solomon's point is this. If you're looking for wisdom, don't just look to the pretty people, the rich people, the famous people, or the powerful people. Some of those people are just fools with nice cars, great attorneys, and smart PR firms running their social media accounts. Just because somebody's in charge doesn't mean they're wise, and just because they're the janitor doesn't mean they're foolish. That's what he's saying. And boy, this reminds you a lot of the Lord Jesus, huh? If you were to look at Jesus, you'd be like, he's not rich, he's poor. He's not powerful, he's powerless. He doesn't live in a big house, he's homeless. I'm sure he doesn't have a lot to say that is worth value and contribution. Not true. There's the wisest man in the history of the world. There's the God-man. So let me tell you what wisdom is and wisdom is not. Wisdom is not intellect. Some people are very smart, but not very godly or wise. You can be a fool with a high IQ. 
Wisdom is not success. You can accomplish a lot by being a fool, including celebrities who make a good living doing things that are just foolish. Wisdom is not education. It is possible to go to college and have more degrees than Fahrenheit and still be a fool. Wisdom is not knowledge. You can know a lot of things that are factual and true, but never act on them. In this way, wisdom includes knowledge, but it takes it further by obeying and acting and doing. I was talking not too long ago to a marriage and family therapist who's in the middle of a divorce. And I asked him, I said, what the heck happened? He said, I knew what to do, I just didn't do it. Maybe a functional definition of wisdom will help. And here's one that I would just submit for consideration. Wisdom is thinking what God thinks, feeling what God feels, and doing what God says with a humble heart by the Spirit's power. Let me give it to you again. Wisdom is thinking what God thinks, feeling what God feels, and doing what God says with a humble heart by the Spirit's power. And I want to I shift. I want to shift your thinking of how can I win to how can I be wise? And I hope you win. I hope you win at work and you make a ton of money. I hope you win at ministry and you serve a lot of people. I hope you win at home and you have an amazing marriage. I hope you win at parenting and your kids all know and love and serve the Lord. I, I hope you win at health and you live a long life and you don't have disease or sickness or surgery. That would be awesome. That's what I want for you. But let's just be honest and say, it's not going to go that way in every category, and it's certainly not going to go that way in every category for everybody. And since we can't all win, and we can't always win, it is so helpful to then ask, well, what, what could I learn from this that would make me wise? How could I respond to this in a way that would grow me in wisdom? And if we really treasure and value wisdom over winning, and I think this is a massive cultural issue in the West. We're all about being winners. We're not about being wise. Wisdom starts in the head with a mind saturated in Scripture that thinks God's thoughts after him. Wisdom moves to the heart with an emotional capacity to feel what God feels about people and circumstances. Wisdom continues to the hands, obeying what God says by doing what is right. Wisdom is something that can only be received by those who pursue humility by the grace of God. None of us can ever say that we're humble or wise, but wise people pursue humility because it makes them teachable and changeable like clay in God's hands, to use a biblical analogy. Lastly, wisdom is only imparted and obeyed by the presence and the power of the person of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. Uh, this is why Ephesians 1.17 refers to the Holy Spirit as, quote, the spirit of wisdom. So Solomon here, he's writing Ecclesiastes for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's writing a book of wisdom literature as the second wisest person in the history of the world. And he's telling us that we really need to value wisdom. 
And, and sometimes we value winning when we should be value, be valuing rather growing in wisdom, whether we're winning or losing. Well, of course, the wisest person in the history of the world is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we want to know what a wise life looks like, if you say, I want to live a wise life, look to Jesus. Not once did the Lord Jesus even set a foot on the path of folly. Instead, every day in every way, he walked wisely. The question is, how did Jesus do this? How did he walk in wisdom? Here's the answer. By the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why Isaiah 11, 2, and 3, it's written about 700 years before Jesus' entrance into human history through the womb of Mary, this prophecy is given. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. There it all is. It just took my basic definition. Really, Isaiah 11 captures that Jesus' wisdom was made possible through his humility and his obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the wise life of Jesus Christ is not merely to be appreciated, but is also to be experienced. Not just something that we see in him, but something that he does in us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, all of us who are fools, and we all start as fools because of sin, we can grow in wisdom through him. And there's been a lot of ink spilled over the years about what it means to be spirit-filled and spirit-led. But if we look to Jesus, it really brings everything into clarity. To be filled with the Spirit is to have Jesus living in us and through us. And to be led by the Spirit is to be walking in wisdom throughout life with Jesus. See, Jesus' life is a Spirit-filled life. Jesus' life is a Spirit-led life. Therefore, a Spirit-filled life and a Spirit-led life is a life that follows the living Jesus by His power, the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's what's wonderful. Not everyone can win, but by God's grace, everyone is invited to pursue wisdom. And this wisdom and new life in the Holy Spirit is available through Jesus Christ to everyone. And maybe you're listening to this and you're saying, I'm just trying to figure out how to get my life together. Start by meeting Jesus, the wisest person in the history of the world, who died and rose to forgive our sins as our Savior. Right? Meet Him, give yourself to Him, and invite God the Holy Spirit to take the life of Jesus and to put it in you so that your desires and your appetites and your thoughts and your emotions and your deeds are, are overwhelmed and overcome and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit so that more and more and more the life of Christ starts to overtake your life and you start to look and sound and act and think more and more like Jesus. And this is what's wonderful, this new wise life of Christ in the Spirit. It's available to the rich and the poor, the educated and the uneducated, the male and the female, young and the old, the powerful and the powerless, the brilliant and the simple, the successful and the failures. 
So in closing, the big idea this week is you cannot control what happens to you, but you can control how you respond to it, what you learn from it, and what you become because of it. It's fine to have a plan for tomorrow and the day after that. It's fine to do all you can to influence and direct your life toward good and God. But just know that you are not sovereign. You are not in control. God is. There are things that he knows that he will not tell you. There are things that will happen that are beyond your control, but somehow under his mysterious providential control. And and when those moments come to you, and I'm hoping that the God of the Bible would just put in your heart and your mind right now, even a thought of, okay, this is this is the area where I'm struggling. This is what I'm frustrated by at home, at work, financially, physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, legally, whatever the case may be. Instead of being obsessed with how do I get control and win, how do I follow the Holy Spirit and get wise? What can I learn from this? How can I grow through this? What would a godly, wise response be? And sometimes all you can do is wake up every day and say, Lord, I just want to do the right thing today. And I don't know what the consequences might be. And I might not win. I might lose. But send me the Holy Spirit and let me hear him through the scriptures that I might just do what is right, that I might pursue wisdom by the grace of God and not act like a fool in the middle of a difficult circumstance because folly only produces more misery. I I hope this is helpful. It's really practical. And it is not of any use to you unless you find a way to apply it to a particular thing in your life right now. And so I love you. I'm praying for you. I appreciate everybody who lets me share what God is sharing with me. And I literally am going to take these principles and go call a woman who had a crisis tragedy today. And I want to help her. And so I pray God gives you the opportunity to do something similar. Thank you.